Hello, this is Toby Haydokes Who's Round, and I've just worked out a far less time-consuming way of recording these introductions. 87 podcasts in. Well, I think this is the nicest location I've recorded in yet. We're on the river, it's a beautiful sunny day, and so I'm going to ask my latest victim to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Hello, um, W, my name's Les McCallum. I've worked on several um, Doctor Who's over the years, starting at Riverside Studio uh, in black and white. It must have been William Hartnell. And I can remember Peter Purvis coming in and and I can remember my son uh, loving Doctor Who but uh, always frightened of the monsters. And um, while I was working on Doctor Who, Tom Baker said to me, well, bring him in, bring him in next week, we're in the studio, and um, we'll have a chat and uh, see if he can um, come to terms with the monsters, seeing that they're not real. So the following week, my wife brought my son in, Spencer, and uh, out came Tom. Hello, Spencer, how are you? You know, in a very uh, theatrical way. And with that, he spread his overcoat and exposed lots of pockets inside. Have a card. And he pulled open the other side of the, the uh, overcoat. Have a badge. Back to the other side of the overcoat. Have a postcard. And this went on for a couple of minutes and until my son was absolutely goggle-eyed. In fact, his eyes were bulging. And with that, with that flourish, Tom Baker turned around and said, Bye, Spencer, I'm back in the studio now. Off he went. Uh, so about a minute later, we followed, and uh, there was Tom Baker talking to one of the monsters, and he said, Oh, there's a kid outside. He said, His eyes are like plates. He said, They're just bulging. He said, and they were all laughing. And, of course, um, he turned around, and then Spencer was there. And he said, Spencer, meet my friend. This is... Um, I think it was a big lobster at the time, and it might have been Stuart Fell in a, a rubber costume. And Stuart said, Spencer, have a feel of this costume. He said, it's just um, rubber, foam, plastic. He said, don't worry about it. I must admit that um, Stuart didn't have his helmet on at the time, and um, he just looked fairly normal. And uh, Spencer was getting quite relaxed by now, and off we went to another monster have a feel, this is the same thing and after ten minutes Spencer was completely relaxed so off we went to the other side of the studio and um, uh, going to a, a space shaft this craft I think it was and uh, all of a sudden a guy came towards us looked like Frankenstein or one of the monsters huge bolt sticking out of his neck and as he walked past he went Whoa! <laughs> frightened the life out of my son and uh, he went as stiff as a board and um, we had to take him out of the studio so all that good work uh, undone completely and we, we reckon that might have been the brain of Morbius because uh, Stuart fell with the monster with the claw yeah, so, and that was been, definitely one that you yeah. worked on so I just was, we do remember the claw yeah, yeah. But, uh, so that was Barry Newbury design that. Uh, do you Barry, Barry? Newbury, yeah so I worked with Barry for, for 11 years in the same, same office uh, we did loads of programmes together and um, Yes, if you, a bit Barry, we still see Barry once a year at his um, garden uh, fate, garden party, with uh, one, another one of designers, where we design, get together, and that's it.
So um, what would your job as, as Barry's assistant have entailed for the layman who might not know the difference? Why, why does a designer need an assistant and what would you have been doing? Well, uh, Barry would come up with an idea, uh, rough it out on a, on a sketch, and uh, we work on a plan of a studio, and everything we design has to fit in the studio and has to... Uh, be assembled in just a few hours. So my job was to uh, interpret, interpret Barry's drawings and uh, do a construction drawing and then make a model, a rough model first of all. Uh, then we'd go to the, uh, the director at the time, show him the models, we'd walk, walk uh, go through the sets and he would say, can I have a bit more there, a little less there? and we'd adapt the model, and then I'd draw it up for real to be constructed on the workshop floor. And, um, and then we'd put paint treatments, and, uh, and then we'd oversee it being made. It could, could be in uh, BBC workshops, or it could be out, outside contractors. And uh, we'd have to see it every couple of days, make sure everything's fitted right. And... Um, yeah. Well, you've, you've kindly prepared by making some notes. So, uh, well, I can see the words Pertwee and Baker there. Uh, so well, what else have you remembered from, from oh, Doctor well, Who? This might be out of order, um, but um, it was the trans, uh, transformation from... Where are we? Oh, oh Pertwee uh, to Baker. Pertwee yeah. to Baker, right. Um, yeah, Pertwee was laying on a stretcher. Uh, they record that, and they take him off, and then we lay down Tom Baker on the same, exactly the same position. Uh, but I think they needed a bit of light uh, taken off, and they said, how do we get the light down with while he's lying down? So uh, they wanted a, like a pull string, as if you'd have in a bathroom, to click the lights on or down. And um, so there was a strike on at the time, the scene crew on strike, and there was no one there to uh, tie a bit of string onto a baton I'd got the chippy to put up. So I tied a string, and from then on, I was in trouble because it wasn't my job to tie a piece of string onto a piece of wood. And, uh, and then I got bumped by uh, the scene, scene crew supervisors who were still working, and they kept bumping into me, and... Um, then I had to leave the studio and someone else to take over. So not a pleasant experience. Oh, well, that was the union strikes. Yeah, well, do you know how that turned out in the end? Is that um, Blue Peter mm. had to present their episode from the set of Tom Baker's first Doctor Who oh, right, because yeah. the sheen shifters wouldn't move. It was over a, it was over a ladder. Yeah. They wouldn't oh, agree who could yeah. move a ladder. Yeah. So because of that, mm. they all walked out and Blue Peter had to be presented from the yeah. Doctor Who set. Oh, <laughs> not pleasant. But I did say to the guys, well, if I'd have asked you tie a piece of string last week, you would have told me to do it myself. So, uh, <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's a strange world, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 Did that, you find that often the sort of union stuff often get in the way when you were working at the beach? Uh, well, on another occasion, uh, we were in a studio, uh, I can tell you the whole story on this one. It was the Cambridge one. Um, Sharder, yes. Sharder, right, Sharder. Um, we were filming in Cambridge and then we had to reproduce uh, a laboratory and um, while we were filming we had permission to visit a laboratory uh, in the town and uh, the uh, the guy showing us around told us it, it was uh, the, the laboratory where they designed lasers and it was um, quite a famous uh, location or, or laboratory because um, it was quite advanced for the period and um, 
So we took notes of the laboratory. We never copy things exactly, it's impossible, but we get the feel, like Dexium framing, bottles, you know, and, and the colours and the style and the, the general feel of an office uh, laboratory. So we came back to the uh, television centre. I drew the, drew the set up and then it was Sharda. We were filming. We set it up. We'd recorded uh, most of the episode and I think we got to, up to the last episode where the laboratory came into the studio and uh, I'm always keen to get there in f uh, first thing in the morning and there was nobody around so I, I walked into the laboratory nobody around so I had about a quarter of an hour to kill and um, I picked up a book it was a reader's digest I think at the time and I just flicked through it and uh, Settled on a, on a page. It was about a laboratory in Cambridge that they developed the laser, and my hair stood on end. So I threw the book down. It was really weird. I'm sitting in the laboratory and I just picked a book up out of ra at random out of hundreds that we'd used in the set, and it's exactly the same room as that uh, we'd re re recreated. Spooky. Spooky. <laughs> And then um, we, we hadn't recorded the uh, laboratory. And then in the afternoon, we'd gone to lunch. And when we came back, um, the doors were locked, chained. We couldn't get into the studio. Uh, yet another strike. And um, all our tools, our clothes were locked inside. And um, the episode was never finished. And I think it was Victor Meredith's only... Doctor Who. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Designer you worked with a lot. Oh, he's my best, one of my best friends. I still see him. I saw him last week. Uh, he's, um, in fact, at the moment he's trying to to get together a history of the design department, um, probably for next year as a, uh, a lecture or or, or um, as a book, anyway. Um, so you've got canine. Canine. All right. Well, um, that was in the studio. TC four, I think you remember, and special effects had made were introducing K9, this robot dog for the first time. I can't remember what set it was, but um, in came the dog, and um, they set it up. And, of course, the TARDIS is on casters, which, which, um, and on a base, which is about nine inches off the floor. And, of course, K9 being on casters as well, couldn't get up the step. <laughs> and plus the fact that when they switched on the... the um, the motors for K9 to run around. The frequency of uh, upset all the light, not the lighting. I think cameras. So there was chaos in the studio for the first morning with this K9 causing mayhem. Mm. We got. Elizabeth Sladen. Uh, yeah. Oh, Elizabeth Sladen was one. Uh, quite a treat, really. Um, a lovely girl, always um, friendly, smiling. And I had the job of handcuffing her uh, with manacles in the uh, in a cave. I always remember that. And she had a, she was a good laugh about me uh, putting manacles on her wrists, but they were all padded, so there was no no problem there. No pain. Right. I guess that would have been Mask of Mandragoran, I think. Oh, which was, yeah, set in Italy. They did it on Port Marion. Port Marion, yeah, so that's one, yeah. I didn't get to go there. That, that was Bar must have been Barry then. Barry yeah. Gibbert, yeah. Oh, so you would have you would have been okay to work in the studio, but they, they didn't take you on the shindig. Not to... always, no. Uh, sometimes you were busy doing the drawings, and uh, on other occasions you, I'd be working with, um, might be another designer, um, two, two designers at one time. 
So yeah. Ferret does a great job with recreating um, Renaissance Italy. Yes, yeah. But I guess you'd have lots of stuff in stock, would you, for, for, for that sort of thing? Uh, we have... Um, We'd go down to scenery bookings and it'd be all flats and you would select uh, windows, doors that suited, but uh, there wouldn't be very much Italian style. You might have had to build things, but um, you get the feel of it. And then a lot is plaster, um, um, vacuum formed plastic we put on the wall, um, decorative. So it's, it's all scenery. It's, and that's what you've given. That's the story that you've kindly given me. The uh, the because you had to redesign the Tardis or rebuild the Tardis. Yes, yeah. I think there's been several since now. And um, in fact, I've just drawn one up. A friend of mine um, owns Aino House in Oxfordshire, and he wanted a Tardis to go into a, a club he's building in the in the crypt. So um, I've just drawn another one up for him. <laughs> Obviously, it couldn't be the same drawing because it, um, it's all slightly different dimensions, but. Um, we're going to put um, mirrors on the wall, paint the other side of the wall uh, as a galaxy, and it will look as if it's floating in, in space. Fabulous. Right, so that's the one. Um, we were working on Doctor Who in TC3, 4, and um, Tom Baker was tied to a stake, and we had uh, lots of plaster logs all around him, and... Um, flames all around on a gas tube and the director wanted more smoke and of course the smoke is vaporised oil and um, with more smoke the, the smoke caught fire and um, everybody could see the flames going back up a clear plastic tube to the box <laughs> and Tom Bacon so the, uh, the smoke has caught fire and is a vaporised oil is caught, has caught fire and it's going back up the clear plastic tube to the box and um, Tom Baker is still handcuffed to this stake and uh, everybody thought there was going to be an explosion and they ran, leaving, <laughs> <laughs> leaving Tom Baker still strapped to this stake unaware of what was going on behind him and uh, I think I might have run away as well and Colin, no I didn't, Colin Mapson just casually walked over and switched off the box. So no. <laughs> that's short is calling that so. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, yeah. I was working with Victor Meredith. Uh, we we worked together many years and um, he I think he was going on holiday and I was going to work with Roger Murray Leach. I'd never worked with Roger before, a lovely man. Yeah. In fact Roger is friends with uh, Tom Baker and we had lunch together up in the BBC restaurant with Tom and uh, Tom said that he'd got his idea of uh, jelly babies from Roger Murray Leach. Uh, Roger was always eating jelly babies, so that's a little connection there. Oh, that's a nice yeah. one. That's a nice one. I and don't think uh, anybody said that before. Yeah, oh, right. It's, uh, I'm sure that's right. Um, and, I mean, Blake Seven Famous has that very big wooden set of the Liberator, the big spaceship set. I drew that up. You drew that up? And I've got all the drawings for that still. Yeah. I, I went down... Uh, when the design department was having to be clear out or change around, they threw all of the drawings in a skip. And uh, I went down and I couldn't believe that they would throw all this history away. And um, sitting on the top were my drawings. And so the, the flimsies, that is, the, the negatives. So I retrieved them from the, the, um, the skip and I've still got them. And um, 
I'd already saved uh, a print, a print of it, and I got all the cast to sign the, the print that I had of the Liberator. Oh, fabulous! Yeah, well, it might have been the Liberator, or I think we had a, a shuttle. Was there a small shuttle? School, the Scorpio. That was the oh, that right. was the latest ship. There were various but, spaceships. Yeah, though. yeah. But we built we built a small shuttle that dropped out from underneath, and um, we built it full size. It must have been 25 foot long. We built it on the BBC workshop floor. Um, from one side, it looked like the whole spaceship, but when you look around the other side to get into view inside, we kept. A, a, a quarter of it off so you could shoot inside so shot from one way it looked like the whole um, craft and then inside you could get the camera inside and um, when I drew it up I made sure before I drew it up that we could trundle it truck it from the workshop floor across the the ring road into the service road and into the studio now I made a, um, a scale model and I took it on the plan, made sure I could get round the corners into the studio. And then come the big day, all the chippers loved working on this um, craft because it was full size, great thing to work on. And um, as we got onto the, the ring road where all the trucks, scenery trucks had been stored, trolleys, there was a trolley there and it was empty, but it wasn't our job to move it. Empty trolley, which one man could have moved. And so I went to see the scene supervisor on, on the Saturday, Saturday morning, asked me if he could move it. And he said, no, he would have to bring in two men on overtime rates to move it 20 feet. Mm. And one of the cut carpenters was so outraged. He said, no, he said, that's blackmail. He said, I'll cut the wing off. And he'd just built this thing. He said, I'll cut the wing off. And he cut the wing off pushed it through, because it was only a couple of feet that we, we was blocking us, we pushed it into the studio, and the carpenter reconnected it, which was a shame, because um, we could have stood on the on the wing, and they put it back so you couldn't see it, but that just shows you the what was going on at the time. Goodness me, goodness me. So how had you got to this strange place of all its internal politics that nonetheless was a hive of creativity? What had got you uh, uh, interested in design and, and how had you, you made it into the BBC? Um, well, when I left school, I, um, Dad always said, get trade behind you, and um, I should have gone to art school, but I never did, and um, I ended up as a carpenter on the workshop floor. I'd gone to night school, and, um, and then I saw the design department, uh, which was above the workshop floor, and I thought, oh, that's the place I want to be. So I went to night school with Stephen Bundy, and so um, doing drawings and um, designing small sets. And then in the evening, we'd go to the television centre, because this was at Lime Grove, the, uh, the night class, and then we'd walk round the television centre. Well, remember that I'd worked there all day long, and... Um, in the end, I was telling, teaching people in, on the course how to draw and what. Uh, <laughs> so it was quite ironic that I had to go through this whole process just to go get back into the design department, although um, I was working there all day long. And then I got taken on, uh, and I never went back to the workshop. So that changed my life. Um, great uh, career after that. You enjoyed working at the Beeb? Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Some lovely people to work with. In fact, um, joy to go into work every day. Um, you lay in bed 
at night thinking how you're going to set the next drawing out from the next day. You just loved working there and uh, thinking how you're going to do things the following day. And loveliness aside, who were the most skilled designers that you worked with, would you say? Oh, I've got to say Vic Meredith, um, Roger Mary Leach. In fact, it was good because Vic is very meticulous in everything he does. And I get on... I, I'm brain crash wallop, get, get, it, get things done. And so it was a good, good team. We were, he would show me what he wanted. He would draw things up and sketch it out. And um, we'd, uh, we'd get on really well together. Never a crossword in 13 years. Because he did um, David Maloney's Day of the Triffids. So did I did you that, on yeah, that? yeah. I think I've got a Triffid at home, a little oh, plastic really? one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which that was got, a good show. Oh, brilliant, yeah. yeah. Another great one to work on. Uh, I mean, lots of changes in location for that as well. It was, you know, it wasn't standing oh, no, sets yeah. for the few was episodes. It, it David, moving David Maloney as David Maloney produced yeah. and Ken Hannam directed. Ken Hannam, oh, lovely. Australian, yeah, 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 Australian guy, yeah. 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 Um, I've, I've got it on DVD, it stands yeah. up very nicely. Oh, good. It's a good show. There we go. Well, I've got a small one, uh, which we use as a model. Right. Uh, we were... Oh, in fact, yeah. I don't think I've got the one with Margie, Margaret Hohe. Yeah, yeah. Um, we were sitting by a fence where they're marooned inside the farm. Yeah. And the triffids are outside trying to get in. And the, they had to break out in a Land Rover. And so we put a big scaffold board across the gates. And the Land Rover had to drive through. So we cut the scaffold board so it was snap. And Margot, uh, Corinne Hollinsworth, and I were sitting behind the fence with triffid heads <laughs> on sticks, bobbing them up. The Land Rover crashed through the fence and it catapulted this half of the um, scaffold pool board towards us at about 60 mile an hour and it nearly took my head off. We were all sealed. Luckily, I could see it coming, and it would have taken my head off. So, uh, lucky we had a close escape there. Crikey. You nearly died for Day of the Triffids. Well, I've just given you a, a, yeah. a, a, a drawing I've done of the TARDIS. Well, it's so popular that um, a friend of mine, Adam Bloom, a comedian, he said hey, he was doing a, um, a charity uh, fun at the comedy club and would I have anything I could donate so I donated, donated the uh, a print of the TARDIS and uh, it was up for auction and I think it got about £100 which oh, is not wonderful. bad so he was quite pleased with that Oh, right. you were talking about the Liberator Ah, we've got the Liberator in front of us, goodness me don't want it to blow away in the wind There we go, look at that we had a ball in, the stu- in my office when Roger Murray came in, and we would we had to do the ORAC. Yeah. And we, well, how do we make that? Uh, so we we had. Oh, is this the big one? That's Zen. Yeah. Zen was the big one. <laughs> Zen ORAC was, it? was the little one. Yeah. Right. So uh, I think the voice of K9 or Dalek. It was Peter Tuddenham. He did uh, Zen right. and ORAC. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so we cut the ball. We cut a slice of off this ball. We were making the model first of all, and you use anything to hand or what will look good. And so that was a little rubber ball in, the, in, a, in my office. It might have been my Spencer's ball, for some reason, in, in the office. And um, this was all fiberglass, the, which we, we made up the props for the, for the steering the Liberator. Yeah. They were angle poises. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> And all the chairs 
we I don't think we had made um, oh, the, the fiberglass ones we had made in uh, an industrial estate where they made all morgans so all these little sheds you know, made part of a morgan someone would do the the uh, the body someone would do the chassis someone would do this that and, and uh, they made all the fiberglass chairs for us fabulous yeah it was a huge set for its time, oh, wasn't yes, it? Oh, yes, it was, yeah. But once again, it went in overnight and filming within a couple of hours. Uh, so it was quite a challenge to get it all in and up and ready. In fact, they were so late, they were filming before we'd even got the um, the chairs in. They hadn't even delivered. Uh, we brought them in through the through the doors, set them in, and I think they were filming on them within minutes. <laughs> do you have to have, do you have to be quite a historian? Because if you're doing a lot of historical drama and stuff, do you research from scratch oh, yeah. to get stuff? Well, right? we, uh, the television centre on the design department, we had um, two floors, and some people were in the East Tower, and at the end of the, the um, corridor, we had a library, so we could always pop into the library, a very good library as well. Um, I had reference library and illustrations, files that we could, um, one of the librarians would, would sort out anything you wanted specifically, or you could spend an hour just going through everything, looking and going through the books. So you'd always find something um, and come out with a pile of books for the, for the period you're working on. Oh, you might be interested in this one. Michael Crawford. Oh, yeah. I did the very first series with Ian Rawls, I think it was. And um, I think this is where he falls out the back of a van into a tub of um, tar, road tar. Ooh. Of course, it's not real, but yeah. um, um, I think it was Bisto thickening, if I remember <laughs> rightly. He did all his own stunts, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this one was just to explain. He had to. Uh, he had a job in the brick brick factory, and they were blowing up one of the chimneys. Now today, we would never ever been allowed to be anywhere near a chimney that's been blown up, and we wanted the camera in front of the chimney as the chimney came towards us. And Michael Crawford would run out either aside the chimney or after it, and. Um, so we measured the length of the chimney, which has got to be several hundred feet high or a hundred feet high or more, and um, the explosion on the bottom, the chimney collapsed, and of course the bricks at the top have gathered speed by the time they come down, and they were coming like rockets to us and hitting this sca- uh, a skip in here, bang, would could take, could have knocked all of our brains out and then Michael Crawford ran just as it hit the floor this chimney and it wasn't a very good shot because um, too much dust so they did it again so we're lucky enough to do it again with another chimney and this time he ran from behind the chimney over the chimney as it collapsed and all the bricks were collapsing underneath him and we thought oh we've ruined the shot's ruined because it was just dust end credits and dust and it was dust and all of a sudden Michael Crawford comes running along the top of all these moving bricks which were still collapsing under his feet through the dust and went 
Ooh. <laughs> his, his trademark. You wouldn't be allowed to do that today, would you? No, you wouldn't be allowed to do anything you, you, like you that. You couldn't insure your staff. Maybe, that's that the next one. That's the one. But it's true, we've got the vis visible, visual proof of the falling falling singer Michael Crawford on the wreckage. My right. goodness. Right. What's this? Oh, here we are. This is where he came out of the dust. So oh. this is another chimney. And there he came out and said, Oh, Betty, I think the, ch the chimney's done a whoopsie. I think that was the, uh, the catchphrase on that one. And I remember everyone thinking, Are we going to run? Everyone was gripping each other as this chimney came towards us. Right, Michael Crawford has joined a courier company and um, we, we set this motorbike up. We've got it, uh, got it fixed with the exhaust coming up through the back seat. And um, so I think that was uh, Andrew Howe Davis and I were doing this one. We set a trailer up with bales of straw and I think it was the Magnificent Seven and... Musetti was uh, Val Musetti. Val Musetti, you yeah. got down. You got, you amaze me. <laughs> and uh, so these two teams, they said to Michael Crawford, one team said, "Go up the ramp," and he's got to appear as if he's going over a wall and into a reservoir. Go up the ramp at 30 mile an hour. And the other team said, "No, go up the ramp at 15 mile an hour." And I thought, well, there's something wrong here. There's quite a difference in speed. So um, I sat on the wall, I got my camera ready, Crawford came up the ramp and he did 15 mile an hour, which was really slow, and he just seemed to float through the air, and enough time for me to wind my camera on, not digital, I wound my camera on, and Crawford landed at the end of the box, boxes of stunt, stunt mattress and boxes that were right, if he'd have been doing 30 mile an hour, he would have ended up in the woods. That just shows you. So, um, as you can see on the photograph, yeah. he's almost at the end of the boxes. Yeah. yeah. So that's one little stunt he did. Yeah. Well, let's sum up. So, I mean, I mean, working right up until you know, you've 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 done it all. You've done Only Fools and Horses, EastEnders, Sci-Fi. Um, so, have you in, have you enjoyed your work? Loved it. Loved every minute of it. Yeah. Yeah. I've worked with some great people. And uh, been, always been a pleasure working at Beeb, and uh, do miss it. But I haven't got the stamina for working long hours and uh, being away in all weathers. And uh, but been a great career. Well, thank you for having the stamina for enduring an interrogation from me. Uh, so I've just got the final two questions, which are: What's your charity, Les? Because uh... oh well, that's taken me by surprise. Um, we do a, a friend of our son died at the age of 25. Um, from cancer and we before he died we tried to raise money to send him to America for treatment at the Betty Carter uh, clinic uh, sadly he died and uh, but the fund Scott Gregg uh, fund still continues because we thought it would be a shame to break up the organisation that uh, collecting money and so we give it to or any local child or their parents if they need uh, a rest or to get away for a break and any equipment they need such as um, chairs or anything that they need and um, so there's a group of about 20-30 women in the area at Twickenham Islesworth that um, still fundraise so that's a Scott Grigg Foundation
Brilliant. An excellent cause. And the Doctor is 50 years old this year, Les. It started the day after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, so, yeah, so what's your message to the Doctor Who fans out there on this illustrious year? He <laughs> <laughs> hasn't got one. He hasn't got one. <laughs> you don't have to have one. No, but all I will say, all I will say is, Les, for your time and your sharing your wonderful pictures and your memories of Doctor Who and many other things, and for bringing me a print of the TARDIS design, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks a lot. Thanks for that. That was great. And that'll cut down nicely. My thanks to Les. I can't find any details about the Scott Gregg Foundation online, so stay tuned whilst I sort that out. But we have to make haste because... The reason these are coming out so quickly at the moment is we're trying to get to number 100 before Christmas, where I will reveal whether or not I did actually complete my task in 2013, as I had intended. So, fingers crossed, that'll all work out in the meantime. Next up, one I really wanted, thrilled I got. Here's a sneak preview. Stay tuned. My son, who is now 52, was sitting on my knee... Uh, when we were watching the, um, the episode on the television. And, um, and he was only a tiny, tiny little chap of about two and a half. And, um, and I got zapped by the Daleks. And, uh, and he turned round in astonishment and looked at me and made quite sure that I, <laughs> I was still alive. Anyway, so that was, uh, that was Timmy, my son making sure that I hadn't actually been sat. Big Finish Productions. I know what Dana was looking for. There was a connection, a thread running through every search she had Aurek make. A name. My name is Remy. Where are you? On the planet Carwin, stranded. I'd almost given up hope of rescue, and then I felt her mind reaching out. Yours. I have friends, Villa. I'm being punished. That's what it is. Punished. Tarrant. I wonder what happened to Dana. I'll never know now. Grant. Never liked water. Never liked swimming, even as a kid. Did I drown? I'm not sure. You, Avon? We are friends. Good friends. Blake Seven. We understand each other. Yes, we do. Big Finish. We love stories. 